Scribe is the magic behind Colossus Transcripts, and Scribe is the presenting sponsor of this episode of Making Media. One of the best decisions we made at Colossus was transcribing all of our audio into a searchable transcript library. Now, we had been using another provider who won't be named up until the summer of 2022, but we were constantly having issues with the accuracy of our audio, even if it was just the slightest bit impaired or hard to hear. Scribe has solved those problems and more. So whether it's training sessions that you're having, internal Q&As, or for media purposes like ours, the value of transcripts is huge and probably bigger than I even ever expected. And we're not alone. Scribe is the service that powers all of S&P Global, like Capital IQ, and their client list also includes our friends at Tegas. So go to joincolossus.com backslash scribe, that's S-C-R-I-B-E, and you'll unlock 150 minutes of free transcription. Again, joincolossus.com backslash scribe to test their capabilities. Let's do this. Welcome to Making Media. Humans are in an eternal quest for convenience. Save me time, make my life easier. My gosh, that was such a good start to an interview. For this week's Making Media, we sit down with longtime journalist and media man, Simon Owens. I've been reading Simon's work for several years now, and I appreciate all of his perspectives are rooted from actual experience. He started in newspapers. He's worked with large brands like U.S. News and World Report, PBS, The Atlantic, The New Yorker, ESPN. And now he writes independently on Substack. But he's even shared why he moved from Medium to Substack. So he's a true practitioner in the industry he covers, which we love. This conversation covers a range of media topics. So please enjoy and stay tuned for our debrief to conclude the show. Thank you. All right, Simon, excited for this conversation today. I have been following your work for a few years now. And one thing I've always appreciated is that you have this history in media. You've been a practitioner for a long time, way back to the newsletter days. You have this journalist background. And I think that helps just in terms of perspective for everything that's happening today, but also everything that happened in the past. And one of the things that's been covered ad nauseum is print to digital and the shift in media from that one platform to the next or the technology evolution. But something that you've been covering recently is within digital media and within new media, there's also an evolution. And there's also some maturity happening in terms of what the new companies look like, what startups look like. So I thought that was a good place to kick off. And maybe you can just give some perspective in terms of what you think is happening right now in media with the new businesses that you're seeing launched that are having success, and maybe some of the early darlings over the past decade that are not having nearly as much success. Thanks for having me on. If you look at the history over the last 100 years or so of media, they are very traditional top-down organizations in which the parent company, the media company, was handling the marketing, the payroll, the distribution, the monetization. And journalists were basically just at-will paid employees pulling in a salary. And over the last five to seven years, we've seen a kind of unbundling of the media, like the creation of the so-called creator economy, where 
individual content creators who already built up their own brands and really understand the distribution of the internet started going out and basically utilizing free distribution to build up their audiences and start monetizing them directly through things like sponsorships, paid subscriptions and memberships, merchandise, events, different stuff like that. So that's been happening where a lot of star journalists, star content creators have been kind of peeling off from those traditional top-down media companies. And then just recently, we're starting to see an emergent new kind of media company that kind of blends this creator economy model with what they're doing. And you're starting to see the rebundling of content where they're bringing in star journalists, but they're giving them a piece of the action and making them actual participants in the business by giving them equity or some kind of cut of revenue so that they have incentives to not only stay at the organization and not go off on their own, but they also get benefits of scale. So if you have several creators obviously working together, you can scale up much more quickly and they get the incentive to stay because they get a little bit of the upside in the business. So it's almost like the startup approach where early employees are given equity. So there's like a lot of interesting models that are starting to emerge as a result. Is there a business you'd point to as a case study of that kind of archetypal 2023 media business that you've been talking about? There are a few. There's Defector Media. It's a writer's collective of a lot of former employees from the sports blog Deadspin. They famously all resigned in mass due to disagreements with the management, and they created basically a collective group of people who are paid based on whatever revenue they bring in. They launched this thing called Defector that's mainly monetized through subscriptions. I think the last report that they released, they're generating over $3 million of revenue and they're just distributing that equitably across all the journalists. Another example is Workweek, which has gone out and recruited star newsletter writers and upcoming newsletter writers and said, we'll provide all the basics so you have some stability. We'll give you a monthly stipend or salary, quote unquote, we'll give you healthcare benefits, we'll give you that infrastructure support, but you get to benefit from the upside of whatever subscriptions you could build in. So you get some kind of percentage based on the number of subscribers who come in as a result of your content. And they also have been experimenting with a venture capital fund where they allow their newsletter writers to kind of identify other companies to invest in. And then they basically act as limited partners who get to benefit from any upside of work we can invest in those companies. And then there's some kind of exit. And then another third example that I've given is Puck. It was launched by, I think, some alums from Vanity Fair. And it's a very magazine-like newsletter company that specializes in long-form content. And they've recruited some really high-level star reporters from The Hollywood Reporter and CNN and The Verge. And basically, it's a very premium subscription product where, again, the journalists that they recruited, they get equity in the company, and then they also get to see some of the benefits from revenue sharing. Would it be fair to say that the business model of what you've been talking about, because it has higher upfront costs if you're paying either inequity or higher salaries, these established journalists, would the business model be more subscription-based for those types of businesses versus advertising, where historically, if you have a lower cost base, it's easier to grow through advertising? I've seen like a swing back towards advertising in a lot of these media companies. I think there was this halo period in like circa 2017 to 2020 with the rise of Substack, where 
this idea of the thousand true fans, like, oh, there's six billion people on the planet. I just need to find 1,000 of them to pay me $100 a year. So you saw all these businesses that were launching that were subscription only. Also, a lot of media businesses like the information, the athletic and stuff like that. But I think there was a rude awakening where a lot of publishers and creators just realized how difficult subscription economics are, at least just by themselves. And also this larger recognition that, yeah, a lot of advertising is really crappy, especially on the programmatic side, but there is a way to scale up premium native advertising that's really tasteful and can bring in a lot of revenue. So now you're seeing a shift back towards advertising and sponsorships within these media companies. So I think the near future of media is more diversified, diversifying across subscriptions, advertising, sponsorships, merchandise, affiliate advertising, you're seeing a lot more diversified companies now than there were like five years ago. Yeah, that makes sense. You brought up the two businesses that I wanted to talk to you next, Substack and Puck. You kind of already alluded to it, but do you expect to see more and more Pucks than Substacks or Mediums in the next sort of five years where you've got these media brands recruiting and building around established journalists? In my golfing niche, we've got a business called No Laying Out, which is a media brand. They've just hired someone from ESPN senior writer from there, which I guess if you told them that five years ago, they probably would have said that would be a very unlikely event. But you're kind of seeing it more broadly across the landscape now. Yeah. I mean, I think Substack has a lot of growth ahead of it and other platforms like that. I think that you're just going to see a mix of both. You're going to see some creators who like just working by themselves, who just want to write about whatever they want to write about. And they enjoy just being kind of like a solo creator. A good example of this is a guy named Matt Iglesias. He's written for places like Vox and The Atlantic and Think Progress. And now he has a sub stack that he generates like a million dollars a year. It's a great business. And he also has been on record saying he just really loves the freedom. He also doesn't want to scale up to a media company. He likes outsourcing all the tech and stuff to sub stack. I'm kind of in that boat currently where I just like outsourcing all the tech and stuff to sub stack. But then you're going to see some creators who see some initial success And they say, well, I don't want this to be just about me. I want a business that can scale up that I could possibly sell or exit one day. And it's hard to exit when you're a solo creator because the entire brand is based on that one personality. So you're seeing more and more creators build a brand on top of their personal brand first, but then find ways to kind of become more removed and scale up. And you're just going to see kind of like a spectrum of the New York Times on one end, the solo creator on the other end, and then a lot of hybrid models, I think, in between. And just focusing on the talent, you mentioned it yourself. I know you transitioned from one platform to the next. What is it that pulls you in the most? Is it the transparency of the economic model? Is it the flexibility of the work? What's the real carrot? And where I'm going with this is what keeps Substacks control over this creator economy right now, where they seem to be the darling in the space? How much of a monopoly do they have on that? I've worked for traditional media companies. I started out in newspapers. I was at US News and World Report. I was also associate editor at PBS.org. I really struggled with the bureaucracy of media companies and also having a lot of ideas that got shut down. And I do like that creative freedom. And that's a huge draw for me. Even if I did try to scale up some kind of company, I would want to do it as like a co-founder where I had that creative control or influence. And I think I probably won't ever want to give that up again. I think that that's a huge draw for a lot of people who enter this. In terms of Substack, I don't think they have a monopoly. I think 
the barrier to entry is rather low. There's always been tools that you can cobble together if you want more control, like pulling together MailChimp and Stripe and WordPress. There are also a few Substack competitors on the market like Beehive and Ghost. So I think Substack, it does have some advantages. One, it already has like a huge brand recognition and scale. One of the brilliant things it did that a lot of writers hate it for is everything that it hosts is on the Substack domain. Unless you buy a separate domain and redirect to it, it gets a lot of benefit from simonowens.substack.com. So there's a lot of brand recognition there. I think it also has a very small but very productive tech team that is constantly rolling new updates to the product. I am constantly amazed at how often they are shipping new features This is a company that recognizes that it's not that hard to build a basic newsletter monetization platform. So they're constantly trying to build differentiation into their product, new features, new analytics. One of the biggest product launches they've done in the last year is something called the recommendations tool, which is kind of like a blog role-like product where Substackers can recommend each other's newsletters. And then every time you sign up for a Substack newsletter, then it shows the user the newsletters that they recommend you follow. And that has provided tremendous benefits to being on the Substack platform versus being on your own. In terms of you see testimonials from Substackers who are saying 50% of their audience growth is happening within the Substack ecosystem versus what they're bringing in on their own. So that's definitely a huge advantage towards being on other platforms. In fact, we're seeing some writers who defected from Substack a few years ago moved to like Ghost and other platforms slowly coming back onto the platform because they recognize that network effect advantage. Yeah, there's something that rhymes with the world of podcasting where the best way to grow your podcast audience is to either go on other podcasts or to have some cross promotion with other podcasts. And it's a little bit different with Substacks, but you can see where there's overlap and certainly seems like they've rolled out a ton of interesting technologies started to lean into some more audio features. I guess asking it more bluntly, if they were to change the take rate from 10% to 20%, would you stay on Substack? Maybe. I don't know. It's hard to say. I mean, I think the 10% is a good sweet spot in terms of fairness. I think the more they move it up, the more that those competitors start to seem a little bit more enticing. I actually think that the future of Substack for their revenue growth is building more products that its creators can sell, like it's testing. And I'm one of the beta testers of a meetings product where people can schedule using my Calendly, like an hour consulting call with me. They upload their credit card information, they pay for it when they're scheduling it. And then obviously Substack gets a cut of that. I think they could allow creators to sell digital products like eBooks and online courses. They could take a cut of that. The growing pressure is they're seeing more and more of Substack writers monetize through sponsorships to build some kind of marketplace or tool that makes that easier to where they could take a cut of that revenue. I think those are where a lot of the potential is in terms of revenue growth for Substack. That makes a ton of sense. Generally in our media worlds, it's generally thought of as an ad-supported model. Once you've got that up and running, you think about how do I diversify away from advertising, given that's probably more cyclical than other revenue streams. And then obviously people start then thinking about subscriptions. You've talked about Substack, which is generally a subscription-based product. I've seen you write about Axios and how they implemented their subscription product across a number of their verticals. Do you have a playbook or best practices for implementing a subscription model if you've started with an ad-supported model? 
the thing with the playbook thing, and this is something I've realized building my own business is there's a reason why media companies, so many of them fail. It's like an incredibly difficult business to get into. The economics are so tough, especially now with there being no barrier to entry. You're just competing against every content creator in existence. So I would hesitate to call anything a playbook because it really is about just throwing yourself at the wall repeatedly and slowly over time, building an audience and figuring out how to monetize them. That being said, in terms of when I'm advising creators, maybe journalists who have a sort of a brand already and experience and they're thinking about getting into it, one playbook, especially that you saw with Axios that you see is not jumping into subscriptions really well. You don't know what your audience wants. Your number one priority should be to grow your audience as quickly as possible because then you're going to see much more benefits once you're scaled up. The moment that you launch a subscription product, you're tying your hand behind your back because then you're going to have to start creating content that you put behind the paywall. And that content is not going to help you grow your audience because it's locked behind a paywall. It's not going to be easily shared or discovered. So putting off the launch of subscriptions for as long as possible is priority number one. That doesn't mean you can't generate reader revenue, but maybe start with more of a patronage model, like a low price product saying for $5 a month, $50 a year, you can support the journalism that I'm providing for free or something to that effect, something that's low effort. You saw that with Axios. Axios, if you saw the interviews with the founders early on, they were talking about these $10,000 subscription products, like similar to Politico Pro or Bloomberg. Uh, that were super expensive. And that's what we thought they were going to launch. But they actually had only free products for the first several years where they built up their email list and audience and brand recognition. And only four or five years after launching did they finally launch subscription products, which I think was really smart. So creating as much runway as possible so that you can build up an audience, you have a larger audience to start converting into subscriptions. That would be my advice number one. Advice number two is building something that is different. So many creators and media companies go in and say, oh, I'm just going to produce one free newsletter a week, and then I'm going to produce two other newsletters a week, but lock those behind a paywall. A lot of news consumers, they don't want extra content from you. They already are getting way too much content. Just providing more content is not really going to move the needle for them in terms of getting them to convert. So like, what can you create for subscribers only that are your super fans that services them specifically? Axios did this where they didn't just start locking content behind a paywall. They kept all their free content. It's exactly the same as it was before. They created specific niche products that their super fans would want to subscribe to. So I subscribe to the media newsletter for Axios. They launched a subscription product where they hired a separate journalist just to focus on the content for that subscription product. And the subscription product was a deals newsletter. So it drilled down further into the media space and started serving super niche content that would appeal to the people who are, you know, have the most to gain from that. And then they were able to charge like $500 a year for it. And the same for me, because I really struggled for the first two years to find a subscription product that really resonated with my audience. And I had so many failed experiments. And what I finally decided on and found that really worked was launching these things called office hours. These were basically themed live Zoom calls with my paying subscribers, but then also recruiting really experienced 
experts in whatever we were talking about that week. So last week, it was about how to become a professional ghostwriter. So I recruited five professional ghostwriters. We got on a Zoom call with all my paying subscribers. We have a live call where we discuss all the aspects of that. And then I take the recorded version and upload it to YouTube and then distribute it to the subscribers who aren't able to make it live. So I created a much more granular, high-level product that was different from the free newsletter I was sending out rather than just sending out an extra newsletter every week. Those two things, going as long as you can without launching a subscription product, focusing on quality and audience growth, and then figuring out what your super fans actually want that's differentiated from your free product would be the two pieces of advice I have. Yeah, it's interesting because you can view it as an opportunity to basically sell advertising for other products. But then also, if you have a product, you can advertise for that on your own podcast at pretty substantial discount. So it does become this interesting flywheel where in the day, many of these media businesses really got that ramped up and going. I think with some of the more recent experiments, I'm curious if you think there's been any lessons. I take something like The Athletic, which was really built on high-quality journalism, people paying for subscriptions up front. This was not going to be an ad model. And a lot of money went into that. And then, at least from my perspective, they sold this business to the New York Times. They sold it for subscriber count. And everything in that presentation was, look at the amount of subscribers and look at how low they monetize that subscriber base. Here's an opportunity. Do you think that is a fair categorization of what happened there? And do you think there are any lessons to take away from that athletic experiment and others perhaps that are like it? Yeah, I think the athletic was born of that era that I was talking about when we thought that subscriptions were going to change everything. And one day everybody would pay for their content. And it was really what opened everybody's eyes to that was Netflix, just posting huge gains in revenue growth quarter after quarter. But what happened to Netflix? It eventually hit a ceiling and it finally acknowledged that not all advertising is bad and it is actually a crucial way to diversify your revenue. All those companies that launched in that era where they were like, oh, advertising is evil. We will never have an ad. That's part of our sales pitch is that we're actually just delivering you a premium product. A lot of them are sheepishly admitting that advertising isn't so bad at all. And actually, it's a good way to pay for high quality content. It's not just so Netflix has introduced an ad tier, The Athletic. The information hasn't officially introduced advertising, but they have a sponsorships head. So they're figuring out a way to incorporate sponsorships into events and podcasts and stuff like that. So the dam is starting to show some leaks there. So I think the future for purely subscription-driven media companies is not that strong unless you are like have a very niche product and you're fine with only scaling to a certain level. One thing that's been claimed is the days of this investigative journalism or even deep dive journalism, those days are gone. You're not going to see these print journalists who get to go spend three weeks with a certain person and then write this long form article. And that's dwindling. The model doesn't work anymore. Do you think there's truth to that? Part of me as an idealist wants to hang on to that idea and that concept still existing and being able to make it a profitable venture. Where do you stand on that? I think that concept was always romanticized a little bit, like the whole spotlight that there's this idea that prior to the internet, every newspaper had these huge teams that were working on six-month investigations. I got my start 
pre-recession in print newspapers. That was not what we were doing. We were having to juggle a million different tasks. And yeah, there was maybe sometimes a story that we were working on for a few weeks, but it was also while juggling most other staff. The vast majority of newspapers were not investing in that kind of journalism. So I think that's a little bit overly romanticized. As for the future, I don't think investments in long-form reporting are going away. Magazines are still doing really well. The New Yorker, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal. You're seeing even in the creator economy, some models emerging for really good investigative journalism. I don't know if you follow the YouTube space, but there's this new emerging YouTuber named CoffeeZilla, who's been doing an amazing work in terms of investigating crypto scams. There's a creator named Johnny Harris, who is a former Vox video creator who's doing amazing long-form documentary type journalism and releasing like a video a week. So the scale, the monetization is there for good long-form deep reporting. And I don't think that's going away. Yeah. And there might be something there as well in terms of the subscription product that you were mentioning earlier. One thing I need your help with is this narrative at the moment in the market that every company wants to become a media company. I kind of understand it, but I'm not quite sure I fully understand why that's a thing and why it's a thing now. You know, you talk about HubSpot, Robinhood, A16Z, like what's going on there? And then once we've tackled that, what are the best ways for companies who aren't media businesses to become media businesses if that's really what they should be doing? The traditional marketing channels that brands had to rely on are showing increasingly diminishing returns. Audiences are becoming way more fragmented. There's no longer a monoculture that's 50 million people watching the same TV show or reading Time magazine. So it's getting harder to reach consumers more using ad blockers or opting for ad-free tiers on Netflix or Hulu. It's just like the returns on traditional marketing spend are diminishing. At the same time, it's become easier than ever to control your own distribution and audience creation. So there's this rising movement about, you know, instead of buying your audience or buying your customers, owning that relationship, using tools that the media companies are using like YouTube, newsletters, blogs, and stuff like that to create a direct relationship with your audience so you're less reliant on paying these marketing channels. Let's say you buy a pre-roll video on YouTube. The second that your ad spend runs out, those ads stop showing to the audience. There's no evergreen long tail benefit from that versus taking that same budget to creating your own YouTube channel that's going to pay dividends through evergreen content that's going to pay off years from now. Those benefits all accumulate. So you're seeing more and more companies start to invest in creating their own content and basically act like media companies so that they can acquire those customers at a much cheaper rate and also have a more consistent touch point with them over and over again until they convert into paying customers. I guess the next thing then is, how do you best do it? There's a buy or a build question. There are some examples where it seems to be working well, and there are some examples where it seems to be not working quite so well. Yeah, I would ask where it's working well. That's what I'm curious about. The best example would be HubSpot. It's like a company that does CRM, also creates analytics and email marketing and stuff like that. And they went all in. They were spending a lot in creating their own blog and podcast content, but they actually acquired this thriving business-focused newsletter, The Hustle. Since then, they have diversified by launching a podcast network where they recruit creators who are already creating podcasts and give them like a monthly retainer. And then HubSpot becomes their sole distribution and 
advertising partner. So, I mean, obviously that's the higher end where you have like a really huge budget and you can hire like an editor in chief who can either hire part-time or full-time journalist and build an entire media organization in-house. That's kind of like the high end. The low end is figuring out ways to find ghostwriters or freelance content creators who are creating piecemeal regular content, whether it's in the form of a podcast or newsletter or blog or whatever like that. And there's lots of ways you could do that by either hiring in-house or outsourcing to marketing consultants or marketing agencies and stuff like that. I actually think that the HubSpot example is a good one. And I do think they've done an effective job where they've acquired The Hustle and they have My First Million and some other podcasts where they don't get too involved in those actual podcasts. It doesn't feel like state propaganda. And the only other comparison I might make is even like a pen and a Barstool, where Barstool is still its own brand, but obviously they're bringing benefits to pen through the gambling arm. And it seems like that is a pretty big distinction, at least for me as a consumer, because the second I see something coming from a brand and their content arm, it feels like propaganda or there's some very obvious bias. Do you think that matters in terms of, am I making too clear of a distinction? Am I being overly general in terms of how I'm separating that? There's always going to be this push and pull where they're like one side of the business, the revenue side wants you to constantly talk about the product and sell the product. But the most successful companies are going to be the ones that try to remain arm's length from the product. So find the way that there are synergies and ways to get the audience into that marketing funnel where they're actually becoming customers, but doing it as far removed as possible to where you're focusing on mainly just creating great content that's not an ad for the product. And I think that's where you're going to see the most success. But it's difficult because the people who are signing the checks, maybe they don't understand content or they don't understand journalism and they don't understand that this is a long-term investment. You're not going to see the return on investment a month from now. It might be six or 12 months or more. So that's always going to be a struggle with a lot of these companies. Yeah, it's an interesting theme for sure. Something else in terms of large media businesses or as media businesses scale, even as creators scale, it seems like everyone is making sure to have exposure across each medium. So podcast, newsletter, some video presence, a website presence. Is that just table stakes now? Do you think there will be dedicated mediums for media brands. You know, if there's the audio in terms of a radio brand, there might be a print magazine, a newspaper. Do you think we'll have separation of mediums or do you expect on a go forward basis what you see from media companies to be across the board? I think that most media companies will try to create some kind of mixture of multimedia, like some kind of text-based written content, some kind of audio content, some kind of video content. Multimedia. Multimedia was the word I was looking for there. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Multimedia. So you're going to see a trend towards that. That being said, media has become so fragmented that I do think most media companies can't afford to do everything. So it really is about really looking at what helps us from a marketing perspective, what helps us from a revenue perspective. When you have scarce resources, what do you actually have time to devote yourself to and actually focus on and do it well, rather than just doing something, doing something half-assed and spreading it across so many different mediums. Like obviously TikTok is kind of the hot social media property right now, but 
it really has its own kind of language and culture and stuff like that. And it's not easy to just take a YouTube video and re-splice it onto TikTok. And there are actually very few revenue opportunities for TikTok right now. So I think a lot of media companies are having to ask themselves very hard questions. Is it actually worth investing our scarce resources in growing a TikTok channel right now? Or should we just focus on the channels where we're already excelling, where we're already bringing in audience and we're already generating revenue? And I think that is a question that a lot of media companies are going to have to ask going forward. On that specific point, do you think YouTube Shorts ends up winning the short film video? Because a lot of people are going to look at it and say, I can repurpose my YouTube content into a shorter version. And it seems to be able to monetize that better as well. Yeah, I'm very bullish on YouTube Shorts right now, winning the short form video wars, or at least forcing Instagram and TikTok to get more serious about competing in terms of revenue generation. YouTube Shorts, there are two benefits now. One, it helps you grow your YouTube channel so that you can then take any audience you build on YouTube Shorts and start monetizing it with your long-form videos. But as you guys probably know, it also introduced a more formal revenue-sharing structure starting in the beginning of February where YouTube Shorts ad revenue is being shared with YouTube Shorts creators so they can now start monetizing their shorts directly. So I think there's going to be so much incentive structures built there where they're going to start attracting the best talent in short form video. And either TikTok and Instagram will start to lose market share or they're going to be forced to adapt and roll out more robust revenue sharing programs. And you've already seen for the last several years, every major TikTok star, once they reach a certain level of fame, what do they do? They launch a YouTube channel and start trying to bring that audience over to YouTube because they know that TikTok audience is one, very ephemeral because TikTok is so reliant on its algorithm, but then two, that they can actually monetize that audience much better on YouTube. At the very other end of the scale is events. I'm kind of fascinated by how important events are to media organizations. It always seems really counterintuitive to me because they take a lot of time to prepare. They cost a lot of money up front compared to writing a blog, doing a podcast, making a video. They're just so at odds with each other, but clearly they're effective because so many media businesses do it. Where do events fit in? Why do companies do them? Why are they successful? Well, I think why so many companies can do them is it's a great way to diversify your revenue. It's like another piece of the revenue pie that you can add in. You have the already existing marketing channels so that you have a leg up over an events company that doesn't have a media company behind it that has to pay for all its marketing and stuff like that. They have that owned audience in the niche. It can generate a lot of revenue, like actual bottom line revenue. But as you mentioned, the overhead can be higher. And also it doesn't scale as well because you can only market to people who have the income and the availability to travel to a place and pay all that money and stuff like that. To answer your question, I think they like it because it's another way to diversify their revenue. It can be a major addition to their revenue pie. But the downsides, as you alluded to, are overhead is high and the scalability is somewhat limited. So that's why you see a lot of companies dabbling in events, but it's not necessarily their biggest piece of their revenue or profits. One of the things that has been a common theme in media, I think, since the beginning of time. It's just been overall audience numbers, just kind of measuring things at a very high level, going back to Nielsen and subscriber counts and all this. And I know you've talked with Sean Griffey before. We had him on the podcast. 
there is this evolution just in terms of companies that are spending a little bit more time differentiating who their actual subscriber, listener, who is actually in their audience. And that could be of different value than just measuring this at a very high level. Where do you think we are just in terms of that change? Because it feels like the data should allow us to get a bit smarter in terms of not just audience size, but who it sits within the audience. And while I think the natural belief was that digital advertising would be the solution here where you could sell using digital tools and have better segmentation, I think that's had mixed results. But it feels like that's still a bit untapped to me, at least in terms of how many companies are leaning into this. Do you think that's accurate? And if not, where do you think we are in terms of that shift? 10 years ago, there was this idea within media that programmatic ad spending, once it became mainstream and widely used, that it unlock all this revenue potential for publishers, that they will be able to monetize these granular audiences and get these higher CPMs because they are selling ads so much more efficiently. And if you had these high value readers who were landing on your website, then you could monetize them so many different ways through programmatic advertising. And that has been exposed to be basically a complete lie. We've seen the rise of programmatic has fueled all kinds of misinformation sites, all kinds of scammers, all kinds of low quality websites that have been draining revenue from the high quality publishers. You've seen a lot of sketchy behavior from the programmatic ad sellers themselves, including up to Google. I'm sure you're aware there's like a major antitrust lawsuit against Google right now that it was basically using its monopoly power to drive lower CPMs for publishers. And that's why you're seeing the emphasis over the last year or two is publishers are moving more towards, as you alluded to, first-party data, collecting email addresses and other key data points, and then selling ads directly. And in some cases, abandoning programmatic ads completely, like Bloomberg Media, for instance, They've taken themselves off all the programmatic ad exchanges completely. You're seeing publishers really waking up that the entire promise of open programmatic advertising was just a complete lie. So yeah, there's going to be continued investment in building up more first-party data, getting that more granular data on their audiences, and building like return visitors. When I was at US News & World Report, I really struggled with arguing that we should be doing deeper, better journalism because the editors would be like, look, if we just aggregate this story, then it'll end up on Google News and then we'll get a flood of 100,000 people all at once. And what I didn't have the knowledge at then to argue was that is complete dog shit traffic. You're seeing a rush of visitors from Google News, but they're going to bounce right off your page right away. They're not going to sign up for your newsletter. They're not going to return. And advertisers don't want that traffic. They don't care about someone who's landing on your page for 30 seconds. And I think the entire media industry is starting to realize that chasing scale for scale's sake really has diminishing returns. How do you think about that personally? You're on Substack, you've got a newsletter, the podcast, you're also on YouTube. A, how do you think about it from the different data points you can collect from those different platforms? And then B, in terms of how do you get more information out of your audience and make sure that they're coming back or you're serving them what they would like from you? Email signups for my North Star, whereas at another media organization, page views are their North Star. It's not that I don't pay attention to impressions or page views and I don't include those in my media kit, but the main number that I'm putting 
front and center is the email subscribers. So that's, that's the thing that I'm really putting out front and center to advertisers is this is the real value. In terms of getting better data, the great thing about Substack, like I said, they're shipping lots of really cool tools, is they actually allow you to embed polls within the newsletter. So the person who's reading in their inbox, they just have to do one click, and then they voted in the poll and they've given you valuable data. So it used to be that newsletters, they tried to collect data about demographics and stuff that they could give to advertisers by having their users fill out a survey that took like 15 minutes. And the participation in that was pretty low because who wants to stop their day and fill out a survey for 15 minutes? But if you embed like one poll per week asking a different question over a period of weeks, you can collect a lot of data about your demographics that you can then put in your media kit so that advertisers have a fuller picture of who your audience is. Do you think this shift back towards email lists and the value of the newsletter, which seems to be over the past few years, very in vogue. And I can trace it back to, like you mentioned before, page views for a very long time, I think were the obvious thing to prioritize. But as you've seen, these social media platforms really eat into our consumption. The one thing you can guarantee is that people will go into their inbox and they're likely to read their emails. Is that something that's here to stay? I always think about these things through the lens of, is this cyclical? And it's just a moment in time, or is this a structural change where that will always have value? I think it will always have value because email is one of the last great decentralized distribution mechanisms. So I don't think it's a fad. I think it's going to have even more importance going forward. In terms of decentralized distribution, you know, there will be somewhat diminishing returns because now every publisher is focusing on growing their email list. So as inboxes become more crowded, it's going to be harder to get people to open your emails. But I also think that other audience channels aren't going to go away. Social media will still be important. Google search will still be important. One thing I've noticed within media companies is an emphasis on the other great decentralized distribution system, text messaging. There are tools that are coming around like subtext that allow publishers and creators to send text messages to their audience and interact with that way. Community is becoming a big thing. Discord, Facebook groups, Slack, ways to get people congregating in a single place and interacting not just with the publisher, but each other. It's going to continue to be a mix. I had someone send me a letter in the mail trying to get on the podcast. And I have no idea how they had my home address. They sent a book and a USB drive, which we all laughed internally. A USB drive feels like one of the worst things you could possibly send someone. And if there was any questions over suspicion. I mean, that being said, there's still value in print in terms of branding and stuff like that, like print magazines, print books and stuff like that. Obviously, there's a lot more overhead and that's like a whole other headache. But that's something that I'm seeing different publishers experiment with and stuff like that. Especially as certain channels get more and more crowded. And that means that those other channels are often left neglected. So if you become, you know, zigging while others zag, Obviously, the economic profile is different, but at some point, it becomes advantageous enough to lean into it. Where do you stand on community more generally? It's kind of become a buzzword and like almost something that is assumed that as a business, you should be cultivating some sort of community around your business. Clearly, there are benefits to it, but I think they're probably also overstated or it's understated how difficult it is to build a thriving community, which you can then monetize in certain ways. Like, Where do you sit on community vis-a-vis -vis media businesses? I think it's hugely important. In my Friday newsletter, I linked to some fresh data on it that 
readers or audience that comment on your articles or participate in some kind of community function are many times more likely to visit your site multiple times a month, in which case, from an advertising perspective, they're generating more revenue from an advertising perspective. They're also much more likely to convert into paid subscribers. And several years ago, you saw this trend. It seemed like every media company were announcing they were closing down their comments section, that they were outsourcing that to social media, that they were tired of trying to moderate the trolls and stuff like that. And now we're seeing evidence from the data that that was a huge mistake. The reason that they were having so many trolls and so much bad conversation is because they weren't putting any resources in moderating that conversation. Like they didn't have someone whose job it was to vet the comments and stuff like that. And so they abandoned it completely and they completely gave away part of their audience to the social media accounts. Cause like the adage was, well, our readers are hanging out on Facebook anyway. So if they want to comment on one of our articles, they could just comment on our Facebook page. But there was so much connection and engagement that they were basically giving away to the social media platforms. And I think that was a huge mistake. So I think every publisher today should have some kind of community strategy in place, responding to people, not just on social media, but also utilizing more decentralized platforms, whether it's Slack or Discord or some kind of third-party whitelisted tool to try to bring their community back in and allow them to interact with each other and to own that relationship more fully. Just thinking about defensibility from here, feels like media is incredibly low barrier to entry right now. And meaning at the earliest stages, starting a Substack is incredibly low cost. What can companies do or creators do to build defensibility in their business? I think consistency is the biggest one. Anybody can start a YouTube channel. Anybody can start a Substack. But I forget what the stats are for podcasts. Maybe you guys are more familiar. But... 99% of podcasts have fewer than 10 episodes. A lot of people give up. It is only through consistency that you build a moat. You build like an archive of content so that people who land on one piece of content can start consuming more, but also through repetition, that's where you build your audience. And I think the ability to stick it out week after week, even when you're not seeing initial revenue or audience growth, that's the edge that any creator can have is that ability to stick with it longer and produce more consistent content than all their competitors. Just quickly, going back to something you mentioned earlier in the conversation, you said that when Axios first launched, they were talking about a $10,000 subscription product for their newsletter. What were the details behind that? What were they thinking that they could put in place, which ultimately they didn't? The founders of Axios came from Politico. And Politico, while Jim Vandehei was there, they launched a product called Politico Pro. So the main Politico website remained 100% free, but Politico Pro was a super niche product that was only sold to lobbyists and other very high-level hedge funds and other corporations like agriculture firms that needed the super granular information that was coming out of Congress, like subcommittee hearings. And the stuff that you don't care about that might be on C-SPAN, but most people don't care about, or like the granular moves within the FCC or the FDA and stuff like that. The stuff that the general public doesn't really care about. But if you're a lobbyist who's making millions of dollars a year from some kind of agriculture client, you need to know that granular information. So Axios was going to do a version of that, but scaled beyond politics. One of the killer media businesses today still is the Bloomberg Terminal cost over $20,000 a year. 
it's been around for decades and still hasn't been disrupted. If you can have super niche products that are essential for a very well-funded client whose business hinges on that information, you can make a lot of money. So that's when they were first talking about it, that $10,000 product was what they were talking about selling. And do you know whether the pivot was forced because they just grew faster and so they realized that there was actually another way that they could monetize their business? Or was it because they actually saw there wasn't enough demand for the product that they initially thought there was? Well, the great thing about Axios is they created this killer product that it's like a general news site, but they were great about creating individual content verticals around all these different niches so that they emphasize newsletters first. And I think it was based on interviews I've heard with the founders, they just were surprised by how much demand there was from the audience for the free content, but then also from the advertisers. And they didn't want to stimmy that demand or halt it just because they went in with these assumptions about a paid product. So they saw the revenue growth, the audience growth was there. And so they decided to just throw fuel on that fire rather than prematurely introducing a paid product just because that's what they set out to do from the beginning. Bloomberg's another fascinating one. Looks like it's still out of a 1980s movie. And they just turned off caps lock for the entire system in like 2005. So it's just this unbelievable story of a monopoly and how they've been able to branch out from there. Yeah. And there are all these supposed Bloomberg terminal killers that keep launching and yet it's still going strong. It has been a graveyard for those. Yes. To close it out, if you were to just look at media businesses that have been created over the past 10 years, what would you point to as the one that's most likely to have a stronghold on the industry in 10 years from now? Oh, gosh. I'm not good at superlatives. I'm not good at like the number one or the best or the worst. Just one that will still be important within the industry ecosystem. Axios still has staying power. It's just created a great new model in terms of owning audiences and segmenting audiences. And now it's growing a paid product. So I think that's really good. I've pointed to Puck as being something that I'm really watching closely in terms of a more premium brand that is figuring out ways to merge with the creator economy. I think The Information is a really interesting publication to watch that was started by a former Wall Street Journal reporter, Jessica Lesson, who then struck off on her own. In terms of building a niche product that is mainly funded by high price subscriptions and just focusing on quality above all things. Like Jessica, I've had her on my podcast and she talks about how if they only have two or three stories to publish in a single day, they just publish those two or three stories. They don't do commodity news that everybody else is doing. They only focus on stories where they can move the needle. And I think that level of differentiation when you're operating on an internet where there's just tons of content everywhere and the barrier to entry is low, Focusing on that differentiation, I think, is going to be key to building a successful media company. Thanks for taking that terrible closing question (laughs) and making a good answer out of it. I appreciate that, Simon. Pick me up when I let you down there. Thanks for joining us. And as always, it's been a pleasure to read you. Can you mention again where we can find all your work? I mean, you could just Google my name, Simon Owens. I'm lucky that I'm the top Simon Owens in search results. I have my Simon Owens media newsletter that's on Substack. My podcast is called The Business of Content. Again, though, you could just Google Simon Owens and all my social media profiles and stuff will pop up right at the top. Fantastic. And it'll all be linked in the show notes. Thank you again, Simon. Yeah, thank you so much. Well, well, well. What a terrible closing question. 
yeah, I struggled at the end there. I was butchering some run-on questions, some leading questions, bailed me out a few times. But yeah, that was a little rough. The funniest thing is, as soon as we stopped recording, we had a very short chat with Simon. Where he was just asking us a little bit about Colossus and what we do. And he said, I would love to have you guys or talk to you for a longer period of time, maybe have you on the podcast. But I like to do these pre-recording conversations just so I can have a chance of asking good questions in the actual recording. And I think that was a direct attack on you and us during our recording, which I found just so funny. I was hoping you wouldn't share that publicly. I was also hoping that you wouldn't pick up on that subtle... I don't know if that was like a backhanded comment or if he just let it out there. And I was like, well, we didn't have a prep call. We did give you an outline. But yeah, that was quite humorous. And I was laughing to myself thinking, should I be reading into this? Nonetheless, we got the message. (laughs) Yeah, we got the message. Honestly, there were a few times where I was very curious about where he was going with commentary. And just a good example with the Substack question and... I'm genuinely curious about how much all of these features matter and all the tech rollouts matter. If they were to change the economics and say bump take rate from 10% to 15% or 10% to 20%, how much would change? Would people still love all those things or would the whole economic equation change? And he suggested, at least put it into question, but it didn't sound like it was a game changer for him. But yeah, spelling that out was important. I mean, you've got to think that that would seriously change a lot of different things. You mentioned going from 10 to 20. That's a big shift. Obviously, yes. No, I think it's kind of interesting with any of these businesses. Some of them are really interesting at the initial stages. But can the economics stay that way well into the future? And there's two examples. There's the Substack, which is, can they keep that 10% take rate and make it into this huge profitable enterprise? But then on the same side, he was describing Puck which I think is really interesting. And I think that there, you're giving equity up front, which you can't do on an ongoing basis. You can't just continuously give equity the more you grow. So there's like a scaling limitation. And I just wonder how much that caps the ultimate size and scale of any of these businesses. Now, some of them, it could just be literally they can't survive unless they change the economic equation. Others, it's well, there's a limitation to who we can bring into this organization in the future because certain people came over here because they were getting this nice stake of equity. They get to capture the upside. Future journalists can't do the same thing. So that kind of stood out to me. Like, There's the things that we love about these companies, and then there's the reality in terms of the health of the business themselves. So that's one where I liked the way that he laid it out in terms of having small-scale players, large-scale players, and now this new in-between middle phase company where you resemble something a little bit more like the bigger behemoths. But yeah, that was interesting and had me thinking. Yeah, I definitely have questions around the longevity of these different business models. They definitely make sense in response to what has happened. But then as you say, on the Puck example, and I never really come across Puck before reading Simon's writing. And I'm like, it's a very interesting publication for people that haven't been on the website and sort of had a read around either their mission statement, what they've done, who they've brought on board, and even what it looks like. It's very kind of upscale. But yeah, you obviously can't keep doling out equity to people that you want to join the business. And then on the Substack side, just that question that people ask, if you've built an audience on Substack, at what point does the economics favor you hiring someone who can manage things on your behalf that you might not want to do business-wise versus just paying out 10% or whatever the take rate might be to Substack in perpetuity? So many questions there. and excited to see how that rolls out. I 
was very interested in his subscription playbook. I know he didn't want to give me a playbook, but he ended up giving me two very good points that you should try and grow as long as you can organically without a subscription and then do something different when you do put something in place to generate dollars. I think it's really difficult. And you see this across the board. You know, He said he's tried and failed numerous times implementing something like this that works. It's difficult because generally the first thing you try is your highest value and best idea. You have to almost give that away freely. And we think about this within our business as well. It's like we've often thought about, okay, if we were going to offer a subscription product, what would it be or what would it look like? There's nothing that can come close to the value that and the time and effort that we put into the podcasts. So everything, when you think about, okay, well, we could charge our super fans this for that product, but the product just looks very weak standing next to the thing that we do day in, day out that we give away for free. So it's a really, really difficult question. Yeah. I almost think if you're going to start a subscription product that looks anything like your free product, just start the subscription product from the start. That's a very, very hard thing to do. Like the Ben Thompson route, where it's extremely difficult. You're capping your audience, how many people you can hit. But if you do go the other route, which I think he was recommending, there is some logic behind that. You want to be able to sell whatever you're selling, if in this case, it's a subscription product to the widest amount of people possible. So you want to have that huge audience that you could possibly sell it into. I kind of differentiate it between if you are going to start out with something that you're giving away for free, whatever you sell in the future should probably look a lot different. Take Doug DeMuro. He is basically selling his marketplace and joining his marketplace. And there's other examples of that too where it feels a lot different than just selling a pure subscription add-on, which I think has not been successful for too many people historically. Yeah, it's a really good point. And this is something we should talk to David Senra of the Founders Podcast about. He started with a subscription. He's thought about every single different way in which you can build, grow, monetize podcasts. He started a subscription, still has a subscription product, but obviously took the paywall off his main podcast and would love just to kind of dive in there and how he thought about it ahead of time, what's changed, how he thinks about the shift, whether he had preconceived notions that have either turned out right or wrong. David, we're coming for you. Yeah, we are coming for David. I think you could even turn it into an equation where you can say, sounds a little bit aggressive, but what CPM can you get? And CPM is just cost per thousand listeners via advertising. And then what do you think listeners would pay for your podcast. And it's obviously going to be a different number because you're going to have more listeners if it's free. So you have to factor in what percentage would transfer over. But I think the economics always tend to tilt in terms of the advertising route. That's just the reality of the situation right now. I did think his examples with something like Axios, I'm trying to figure out the best way to capture that the quality of the content really, really matters. And I think he was doing a good job spelling that out. But to me, someone recommended Axios to me. And I thought, okay, this is going to look like a lot of other things that I get. Highly professionalized, a little bit of a Wall Street Journal feel. But in reality, the way that they present the information, it's bullet points. It's simple. It's like quick hits. And it is all the information I need in very digestible form. I can't overstate how valuable that is because they might give me the same information that 10 other products do, but the way they present it to me is worth 10 times as much as the way that the other products present it to me. That's all like value of the content. The content itself is what's doing the job. So I don't know. That's something that's interesting to me and very hard to capture in these conversations, but pretty much any conversation. 
It's like, oh, what's your audience growth tactics? What's this tactic? What's this tactic? And it's like, well, what are they doing with the content specifically that's higher quality than anyone else? And how much does that play a role? Because I think that gets overlooked. That's a general assumption. But I think sometimes it gets glossed over in the conversation. Yeah, you're talking kind of about user interface, aren't you? And what it looks like when you get to it? And then how does it read? It's a combination of user interface and the information. Giving me the summary of a deal in 13 words is way more valuable than four paragraphs on a deal. So that when I see the next deal, I could see two deals in 26 words or two deals in 3,000 words. And I'll tell you what, the two in 26 is way more valuable to me. And making sure I have all of the information I need. They're also collecting from a lot of different places. So yeah, it's some combination of UI, but also what is in there specifically and what's not in there. You just can't get stuck in the middle, I think. You either give a 13-word description of the deal or you give like the 3,000-word on that specific deal where you go really deep. There are people that need both. But I think when you get caught in the middle where you're not really doing the deep analysis and you're not giving the high-level summary, then I think you get caught in this kind of no man's land. I think that's fair. Other things that stood out, I thought his commentary on YouTube shorts was interesting. In the back of my head, I was thinking, well, does it matter what the creators think or does it matter how many views you're getting? There's something about people are on TikTok to watch shorts, then people are going to want to create shorts on TikTok. Is it a viewership thing or is it money? And in pretty much 99.99% of things, I would say it's always money. Regardless of what anybody says, people are driven by money, incentives, it's money that will change people's behavior. But I was actually surprised that he said YouTube shorts, he expects to be the winner over a TikTok and an Instagram. Well, everyone seems to be trying to take something from TikTok. You had Spotify this week saying that they're repurposing their feed into something that looks a bit more like TikTok. Obviously, you've had Instagram do that. YouTube has done that in this way. So... I'm interested to see what happens with TikTok. Clearly, they've got something there that works, but it's also replicable in different ways. And whether in the end, we look back in five years time and TikTok is no longer, but it's kind of all the dominant platforms of the previous era have siphoned off their ideas and their algorithm of discoverability, but then have been able to monetize for creators more. Because ultimately, if you don't have the creator, then you have no product to sell. Like, It doesn't matter how many eyeballs you have. They've got nothing to watch or nothing good to watch anyway. Yeah, it's like any type of marketplace problem, right? Like you have the creator and then you have the viewer. And it's actually tricky because it's weird that this marketplace exists without dollars exchanging hands. It's just pure consumption and pure entertainment, which is very, very interesting. But yeah, that stood out to me and wasn't what I expected. And admittedly, I have to think about it a little bit more to know what my conclusion is. It does have a nice link to something I want to talk to you about, which is in your question about multimedia and whether if you're starting a media business now, whether you should be doing a podcast, newsletter, a video and everything else in between. We've obviously stuck to a newsletter and audio for now. But then with Spotify's announcement this week, and if you haven't seen it, basically, they are going to try doing this news feed, essentially, where they serve you previews of podcasts, essentially, to help discoverability with podcasts, which is a challenge and obviously something that people have been using YouTube a lot for. And it doesn't have to be a video in this feed. They had examples in the presentation where they had just cover art with the audio playing behind it of kind of your favorite 90 second piece in there. But you have to think that video is going to be more catchy for people using it. People will click on videos more so than they will on static artwork with the audio playing behind. The algorithm will probably then start weighting videos more heavily 
And then is that the end of the audio podcast? Certainly a question on my mind. I'm sure the answer is no, but it's just interesting that all this stuff, video is really in the zeitgeist at the moment. And it's hard for us not to think about that problem. Something new is going to evolve out of this and allow for more people to capture more attention and to be boosted higher. So I think that just as a standalone is pretty interesting. What I really wonder is how much Spotify will actually promote this. Because when I think about Spotify and what they're incentivized to do as a business, music is not really a great business for them. The economics there are particularly brutal. Podcasting is much better. With music, anytime you're listening to music on Spotify, they're having to pay the artist. You pay a flat rate per month. If you listen to a podcast, there is no payment unless there is an advertisement on the back of it. So you can see why Spotify would be incentivized to really promote podcasts, talk about what they want people to embrace. Obviously, music, obviously artists, obviously independent artists, but obviously podcasting too, because the best thing for their business model. So if they are showing videos, what they don't want is for people to just scroll down and keep watching videos, unless there is something tied to the back of that with monetization. So that to me suggests that they might go in a different direction with it and maybe not put as much emphasis on it. I'm not necessarily answering your question in terms of what needs to be done with that. But I do think thinking about what is in their best interest from a behavioral standpoint, just having something that looks similar to a TikTok or an Instagram doesn't make sense. Having something similar to YouTube, now that makes sense. That to me is a lot more logical. And I think some of the decisions they made in terms of auto playing new podcasts I mean, I honestly wonder what type of uptick they'll see in terms of advertising revenue on the back of that, because it already happens to me a lot. You're just rolling into a new podcast, and that means you're rolling into new ads. And that's something that YouTube has been doing forever. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting evolution. And everything that's going on at Spotify is very interesting. Yeah, I agree. I've got a couple of questions as well on that for the general audience. I would love to know how many people watch videos or watch podcast videos on Spotify? Who's watching Joe Rogan rather than just listening to it? My consumption habit is always, I just press play on Spotify and then I put my phone either in my pocket or I leave it on a table somewhere and listen through AirPods or whatever. I'd love to know actually like how impactful video is and how many people generally watch the shows rather than just press play. And then the other side is like, if they do end up waiting more heavily, these kind of 60 to 90 second video clips of podcasts, naturally, you will find creators of podcasts making shorter and shorter. It's the same thing that happened to YouTube. Like You started off with really long YouTube videos, but then the algorithm and discoverability element of it meant that people were making shorter, more pithy videos. I think the same thing naturally would end up happening to podcasts. Again, we'll just be interesting kind of from an industry perspective, how it's always like the platform ends up dictating the state of the art, if that makes sense. I think Matthew Ball did a really good summary somewhere of how music has changed based on the way in which people consume music through different technological advances. And I think a similar thing could happen here. It may not though. The music one's a fair counterpoint to what I was about to say, because I was going to say, if you're constantly chasing the platform that is dictating the art, well, you have to remember that the platform is constantly changing. So if you are chasing that, in all likelihood, you won't be well suited for when the next platform emerges and dictates what the changes look like then. So I would say it's always smart to at least balance and understand if you're making those changes or trying to play into an algorithm, do it for growth and marketing reasons. 
but don't change your end product too much and don't dictate exactly what you do to, to become a slave to the algo. Now, the counter is you look at songs and how they've gotten shorter and shorter. That means they can play more frequently. That might be due to their royalty payments. So it's per song. Whereas for a podcast, if you have a longer podcast, you can play multiple ads within the podcast. So it might look a little bit different. Now, one interesting thing with Spotify is I will also listen to a podcast and sometimes the host will interrupt and say, all right, we need you to look on the video here and you can see so-and-so is holding up this or so-and-so's reaction to this. So it's almost like a companion, but I don't sit there and watch it. That's for sure. Yeah, well, I noticed in the presentation, they had some people on that had video podcasts and they were saying that it was a much more intimate format, which I disagree with. I think audio is more intimate than video, but they were like, you know, you can see us react to things and all that, which, you know, is true, but we'll see. The jury is out on that. I think if you had said three years ago or whenever their announcement about programmatic ads was, you thought like that was going to change the nature of podcasting. The reality is it hasn't so far, as Simon alluded to in the conversation. So we watch with interest on that side. The other final point from me on that conversation with Simon was when we talked about events, I thought he missed a big thing with events, which I'm thinking is increasingly important of an event allows you to make a really big splash in a defined period of time on a calendar. If you have, I don't know, an event that takes place in a certain week of the year, you can really concentrate your marketing effort around that thing. And the lead up to it, obviously, you can sell tickets and you can say, hey, we're doing this thing. We've got these amazing speakers, etc. You can drip feed those people out over time. It gives you a really long window and then a very concentrated splash in the week that people feel like they're missing out on this thing that you're holding. This is obviously if you do a good job. And then after it, you can then repurpose all of that content into whatever medium you use primarily. So obviously the cost and the time it takes to put together is not insignificant, but it does have a lot of other benefits to it, which aren't obvious at first sight. FOMO. You can create a FOMO. Yeah, yeah. Which is really important, I think. Yes. I think you're being a little bit harsh on Simon for not adding that into his answer, but... I do think that's a good point. Not something I necessarily considered. No, I think that was all. That was a good industry discussion. And again, I always enjoy Simon. He's not willing to hold back when he has opinions. He's moved from medium to substack. He's moved from bigger organizations to smaller organizations. He's done things like ghostwriting and all these different roles within the media industry. So his perspective is always good. He's always willing to share his opinion. And it gets harder and harder to find people that do that because obviously there's all types of PR reasons and you don't want to piss people off. So big fan of Simon. Appreciate him coming on and look forward to having more of those in the future. Yeah. See you next week. All right. All right.